0: Hello, listeners. My name is Teresa Shannon. I am the nurse education coordinator for Nine East, an inpatient
1: medicine unit at Children's Hospital. My co-hosts today are... Hi, I'm Denise Downey. I'm the nursing professional development specialist from the emergency department. All right. So in this episode of Small Talk, we're very excited to have three pediatric professionals with
0: years of experience caring for patients admitted to the hospital with bronchiolitis. Charlie, Heather, and Anna Maria, I want to say thanks so much for agreeing to join us. I'm personally really excited for this opportunity to explore bronchiolitis from an interdisciplinary perspective. So to get us started, could each of you please introduce yourselves and speak a little about your role at the hospital, your experience, and your work with bronchiolitis?
2: Hi, Teresa. I can go first. I'm Charlie Wickramasingha. I'm one of the pediatric hospitalists at Boston Children's Hospital. Thanks for having me on this podcast. So in terms of my experience, I previously worked over at Stanford, Texas Children's, and then Boston Children's. I did fellowship here and then remained as one of the pediatric hospital's attendings and complex care attendings. My interest in bronchiolitis is pretty multifaceted. It was one of the most common conditions that we saw during my training, but it's also the one where we saw or I saw the most variability in treatment and management despite there being established guidelines by the American Academy of Pediatrics. It was also one of the diagnoses that I saw the most ting failures on and that resulted in delayed management of respiratory failure. My personal passion and a lot of my ancillary work is improving healthcare delivery, which is what led me to working on bronchiolitis, uh, aiding in the development of a clinical pathway here at Boston Children's Hospital, and also working on an ancillary study, a multi-site study, eliminating, monitoring, overuse for patients with bronchiolitis. Uh, it's being led by Patty Stoick. So, everyone, please keep your ears out for new education initiatives that will be coming out
3: All right, I'll jump right in. And my name is Anna Maria. I have been uh, a nurse here at Boston Children's for 28 years. I was at the bedside for all of those years and served as a clinical nurse, but also as a charge nurse. And so, my interest kind of took off. When I was asked to co-chair the initial bronchiolitis when it was called a CPG way back when. And so my work started with one of the attending physicians from the emergency department. It's interesting to say what Charlie kind of, I just want to reiterate the variations and the approach to the care of these children and uh, these infants. And so I actually completed an EVP project uh, many, many moons ago. And so have remained you know, really interested in bronchiolitis and how I can support the clinical nurse at the bedside and caring for these patients. Thanks, Anna.
0: Last but not least, our good friend, Heather Madison. Hi, I'm Heather Madison. I'm a
4: respiratory therapist. I'm currently the department educator here at Boston Children's. My experience, I have eight years combined in our MICU, the medical ICU, and the ICP both. Uh, we see high volumes of bronchiolitis in the season, And my primary interest in bronchiolitis in general uh, revolves around the management of it. As an RT, we kind of bounce around a little bit. So we see a lot of different takes on individual providers' management of the bronchiolitis. I like the role that we have along with the bedside nurses and really helping to drive the care as far as modalities that we're recommending for the management of it, whether it be BiPAP or high flow, the use or not use of albuterol. I always find it odd uh, the directions that each team takes in spite of clearly written protocols uh, that are available to us. So I'm very excited to talk about it today.
0: That's wonderful. Thanks, Heather, for sharing a little bit of background with your interest in your role at the hospital as well. All three of you brought up an interesting point about your experiences working with bronchiolitis and that you're seeing like variations in approach and variability. One of the great tools I love at the hospital that we have is the clinical pathway. Before we get into exploring the clinical pathway, though, I'd love for our listeners to learn and kind of just go over a little bit about bronchiolitis and maybe address some of the causes and different common viruses, some of the basics. Would anybody like to speak to that?
2: I'd be happy to. I saw the, the fingers go up. As we most know, bronchiolitis, it's an acute respiratory infection that occurs in children less than two years of age. It's the leading cause of hospitalizations in the United States. Um, This was prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's led to more variability. And it's most frequently associated with RSV. However, there are a lot of other viruses that can also cause this. Human metanumovirus, rhinovirus, parainfluenza, and denovirus are just some of the sampling of viruses that can lead to these constellation of symptoms.
0: How are we currently testing patients who present with symptoms of bronchiolitis?
2: So in general, children with bronchiolitis, it's a clinical diagnosis So with that, it usually starts off with upper respiratory symptoms, a cough congestion. Mm -hmm. And then from there, then uh, two to three days later, you get these lower respiratory infection sites, inflammation, obstruction, you get this wheeze or some other adventitious lung sounds that happen. We do do testing here, but primarily to cohort on where we can place them in the hospital. But routine testing, such as chest imaging or laboratory studies, are actually not routinely indicated on these patients.
1: Anna Maria, Heather, and you, Charlie, all mentioned that there's quite some variability in the way we go about treating patients with bronchiolitis. I'm wondering, why do you think variability is such a factor here when it's something that seems pretty straightforward? What I believe plays into that is some
3: clinicians have historically treated bronchiolitis in in a specific way and have had some success, perhaps. Uh, And bronchiolitis is a funny thing because some children may respond to albuterol. Some children may respond better or infants may respond better to saline. And so if you have a little bit of, you know, a good response in that sense, of build that that structure of hey that worked with my other patient in the past let's go ahead and try it again despite having the evidence to say really it doesn't uh, impact every child is different and so uh, not to negate the fact that it could help them may seem that it's beneficial but i think a lot of it has to do with historical uh treatment really kind of set in ways i guess and certain clinicians are really and they have that strong belief that this does help. And so that may, that may steer some of it. And the same goes with the nursing aspect of it. If I'm, I'm a nurse at the bedside and I had good success, you know, with the patient lying upside down in the bed and, you know, getting an old saline bullet and be suctioning, I'm going to believe it's going to work for my next patient. And so some of it uh, may just come from those beliefs as well.
2: (laughs) I think we have a really great point because there's definitely that element of bias from your previous experience, as well as the anchoring effect when you've had a good outcome after an N of one or N of two. You you want to apply that more broadly, but it's just bronchiolitis as much as much as it's like a heterogeneous entity. We do have so much evidence um, indicating what helps and what does not help or lengthens um, the course of stay for a lot of our patients.
4: I think the other problem that I see, at least in the ICU's that I'm in, is that when we mention the pathway, a lot of times with our residents. They kind of get a little bit of a glazed or a blankish look in their eye. They're like, oh, we have a pathway for that one. And we're like, oh, yeah, let's get it out. Let's talk about it. So I think familiarity with the fact that there are these established protocols and we're really relying on our more continuous care people, our bedside nurses, the NPs, the PAs, the people that are in the units daily to really help us drive this. And I think awareness is a huge issue with this as well.
3: Yeah, I think some of it also that will come into play is that, you know, if you happen not to be on 9East for bronchiolitis season, you may not see a lot of bronchiolytics in another area. And so you may not have that experience. And so they're here for a short period of time where, as Heather said, you know, the bedside nurse on 9East has really acquired these skills in assessing bronchiolytics that other units may or may not have, just like we don't have a lot of experience with orthopedic stuff or uh, things that happen in the emergency department. And so every It is somewhat unit specific and the comfort level definitely varies from unit to unit. And so that may
1: play into some of the comfort level in caring for these patients as well. Can you talk a little bit about the inclusion criteria for our patients?
2: So in general, it's patients less than two years old and those who are displaying signs of essentially lower respiratory tract illness. And so we define that in the pathways like tachypnea or fast breathing, wheezing, or some crackles on exam. Mm-hmm. Other than that, there are some exclusion criteria, which we put in just because it does change the severity of illness and the complexity of how we think about them. And those are You know, individuals with neuromuscular underlying diseases, chronic lung disease. And sometimes those individuals do require additional treatment that deviates from the standard bronchiolitis protocol. Mm
1: -hmm. So, being in the emergency room, we don't have a lot of time to spend with the patients. Well, I mean, we might now because of the increased length of stay a little bit, but. If patients come in in respiratory distress and we hear some wheezing and crackles and congestion, they all sound the same. So how do we know which ones are bronchiolitis versus some other illness that's happening?
2: So for me, it's getting a typical history. So you have this prodrome, this like congestion that happened for one to three days. Then you develop these other symptoms. You may be dehydrated on top of it maybe in daycare exposed to other individuals with similar symptoms. And it's also recognizing on the exam, bronchiolitis, it doesn't have the same focality per se as pneumonia. And also bronchiolitis, I find that it's one of the diagnoses that will make everyone a liar. <laughs> At one moment, they sound amazing, completely clear. The next moment, they look like they are about to completely decompensate. <laughs> so in a way that tells me this might be more of a bronchiolitic than otherwise. And it's also just thinking through again from an age standpoint, what are these patients at risk for? <laughs> so that's where it is helpful to think through if you're seeing that constellation of symptoms you mentioned, are they less than two? And in my head, it's, it's bronchiolitis and I need to prove that it's something else other than bronchiolitis in my head through my differential, through my history, and, and other exam findings that may indicate something
1: else. And what are some of those exam findings that you're looking for?
2: So a couple different things. So, for example, the differentials that I think about are like pertussis. With that, you hear you have this more distinct history of like a true whoop-like cough. Or, for example, other more serious conditions, such as congenital heart disease or heart failure, Are they having a weight loss? Are they having night sweats? Additionally, it's chronic lung disease. Um, With that, are they a preterm infant that had a prolonged stay in the NICU? So those are ways that help me identify which pathway or what I'm most concerned about.
1: Can you describe the time frame for the course of the illness? Because I know a lot of times they'll say, oh, this is day three or day four. And can we expect them to get worse before they get better? Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Absolutely. So this is something we actually discussed quite a bit. And the Anna Maria was part of the protocol when you we were creating it. Um, there's been a lot of research looking at severity of illness, day of illness. So in general, as I mentioned before, we have that prodrome that we develop those lower respiratory tract symptoms, but there isn't necessarily a correlation between severity and the day of illness. When I was going through my training, I was like, oh, you're, gonna, you're hitting your peak. It is X day. Um, what well, we know now, That's not necessarily true. Really, what we're looking for is improvement of symptoms during the hospitalization to tell us you're getting better. Is your work of breathing improving? Are your retractions improving? Um, Are you less hypoxic? And that's more how I define it than anywhere else for progression of illness.
1: What do you do at the different stages? So as the illness is getting worse, what are some of the interventions that are done? Not only from the beginning, like when I see the patients in the ER first, but when they're admitted and then in their length of stay and you know the kind of work that Heather helps to maintain or improve their oxygenation status. Can you talk about that, the course of illness?
2: Absolutely. Unfortunately, I wish there was more that we could do for bronchiolitis, but it's majority of it is supportive care. Supporting them from a hydration standpoint, are we able to help them take in enough by mouth? Do we need to put in an n tube or an NG tube to support them? Do they need IV hydration to maintain them? The majority of the management is really where I appreciate my nursing colleagues and my respiratory therapist's Because it is frequent monitoring, frequent observation, lots of nasal suctioning, and those tend to be the best in terms of just supporting their care. With that, we've learned that albuterol doesn't really help. It's not routinely indicated. Hypertonic saline, not routinely indicated. RAC epi is not routinely indicated. Um, Even chest PT is controversial about whether it is routinely indicated. So unfortunately, it really is just allowing the child time to get better and supporting them. And, you know, sometimes we do see those escalations where the child is working harder to breathe or they are becoming hypoxic, they need nasal cannula oxygen, or they need non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. So there are additional steps, but it is really hard to predict. Sometimes we do know if they're a younger age, premature, they have underlying chronic lung disease. Something may indicate they're at risk for more severe illness, but sometimes we just genuinely don't.
3: Yeah, from a nursing standpoint, it really is just supportive care and really empowering the families to really feel comfortable because as we prepare them for discharge, before a baby gets ready to feed, letting the family know why don't we go ahead and try to do some nasal suctioning with a bulb syringe, optimally because they won't have a, uh, an inline suction canister to go home with. So, really, kind of just showing them that this is something that they can manage at home. Um, You know, some of these kids, they spend a long time here um, on just a tiny little whiff of oxygen. And so that's something that we really, you know, we try to, going back to the, you know, the monitoring and the continuous sat monitoring and so forth. And that's, as uh, Charlie said, there's a a study going on now that we hope to uh, kind of eliminate unnecessary monitoring for these children. But you know, less than three months, they are at higher risk for apnea. And so we can uh, appreciate the fact that they should be on a cardio um, and respiratory monitor for that. It's a rare occasion that um, a child, unless they're in severe distress, that they really warrant to be on a continuous sat monitor um, because that does create a lot of angst for families. It makes them really nervous. um, And as we all know, with um, continuous SAT monitoring on an infant, um, you're going to get, pick up a lot of variable readings and some may or may not be true, adding to the the treatment course and adding to the anxiety for the patient parent at the bedside. So as nursing, we do a lot of suctioning, a lot of teaching, a lot of assessment for uh, retractions and whatnot. And just really, as Charlie said, keeping them well hydrated and uh,
2: teaching the families really. Anna Maria, I thought you brought up a great point about the continuous oxygen and the spot oxygen, because That is a huge part of what we do is this monitoring, and it's appropriately monitoring. And just referencing what you were saying about sometimes we do overuse monitoring. Just one of the recent numbers that we have at Boston Children's is about 57% of our patients, uh, it's an overuse rate of that, 57% um, of continuous pulse oximetry. And what we do know is when we put a kid on continuous pulse ox, it does increase their length of stay, but not necessarily an effect on morbidity or mortality.
1: That's interesting because in the emergency department, we kind of think like every exam room has a monitor. You have a child that's coming in in respiratory distress, then just put the child on the monitor and leave it there. So then ask the nurse, how would you walk into that room then and say to the parent, your child doesn't need the monitor anymore? And they're looking at you like, "Um, I'm not comfortable with you turning that off. Yeah, it's not easy sometimes, and
3: it's really something that I would suggest that you don't do on the overnight shift, obviously, to introduce that, but perhaps bring that conversation up. You know, tomorrow's a new day. Let's see how they do overnight. Really take that additional leap of faith in the morning. When you're awake, you become the monitor. Um, You know, maybe when the baby's asleep, um, we could put them back on the monitor, kind of reassure you if you step away from the bedside. But during the daytime hours, when you're awake, the baby's, you know, doing their normal routine you kind of become the monitor and i want you to feel comfortable with that while you're still here and you do have the support of the staff around you Mm -hmm. because we're confident that you're safe and that the baby's safe
2: to uh, come off of
3: the monitor Mm -hmm. not everybody buys that though i'm
2: gonna (laughs) would be (laughs) nice that's where it requires the team like that is truly where sometimes it's the physician sometimes it's the nurse sometimes it's the respiratory therapist Sometimes it's, a, you know, the assistant who is coming by and checking vitals who can help with parents' understanding of what is normal, what is not normal, why was it being done in the emergency room or why it didn't change once they're in their inpatient setting? Most of the times it's this discussion of, okay, we may not be on a monitor, but we are watching very closely still. Every four hours we are getting vitals. We know that we are watching the worker breathing. We're watching all these other factors that give us really good information. Um, that sometimes are a precursor and more important uh, than necessarily just that number.
1: And do you find that you get a lot of readmissions once patients are sent home?
2: So in general, we actually have a pretty low readmission rate. Saying that, it's about national standard, and I'm so sorry, I don't have the number on me right now. I usually keep track of it uh, with this intervention. In terms of readmission risk, there are certain patients that are more at risk, um, and it's those who have actually passive smoke exposure and mm-hmm. those who are less than two months of age, um, as well as those with like chronic medical conditions underlying, they are also at higher risk for readmission. Um, what we tend to see more so is it's all based off of the discussions and the education. And this is where discharge education starts on the moment of admission. Just mm-hmm. explaining to parents, what is worker breathing, What are we worried about? when do we get concerned? Is it nasal flaring? Is it grunting? Is it subcostal retractions? How many wet diapers should my child be having right now? And also empowering them with the correct resources at home. Are we sending them home with nasal bulb suction? Are we sending them home with things to help support them? Um, Or are we sending them out into the world without any resources?
1: Heather, I'm curious, what information would you like to pass on to the nurses who are at the bedside when they're getting ready to discharge these patients? Well, that's well, a loaded question. Um, okay.
4: <laughs> no, just like we really, really work in partnership, I believe. Um, we're at our best when we're dealing with a patient with bronchiolitis um, because we have to be so collaborative with nursing in that point. My primary thing that I, I guess I would say to pass along to the parents is knowing like they know what their child looks like when they're breathing comfortably they know what their child when their child is in distress that's what brought them to the hospital to begin with and i think just empowering the parents to trust their judgment as to when things are not going well and that alternate interventions are going to be necessary but telling them you know you can bulb suction the patient, get them into a bathroom with a little bit of steam or whatever you think is going to ease them. A little bit of humidity in the room itself might help, but just all of the tools that we use here, we don't necessarily need to have the fun stuff like the parents don't need to go home on a high flow cannula or even an oxygen cannula, but that they can monitor the patient for changes in color, lethargy, a failure to eat, all the major hallmarks that the child is um, devolving back into a higher level of sickness. Probably my best advice would be just the empowerment that we're able to give the parents. I know we do at bedside a lot of handholding with our families. I like they're like, is this normal? Is this, and you know, it, what's normal? And that's the question that I think we need to start asking our parents. Like when they ask us, is this normal? And they're like, well, what does it look like normally? And they can usually describe. Uh, we live in an amazing time where everybody has a cell phone with a record button. I don't know how many times parents have whipped out a phone and went, this is what they looked like before I brought them in. And we go, "Ooh, that was bad. OK, yeah, good call. Good call. You did a good job bringing them in. And I think just letting them know that they've done the right thing by bringing the patient to us, but that we're also doing the right thing and sending them home, that we're trusting them to their care because they're doing a great job. They did everything they were supposed to do the first time. If things change, bring them back. But they're capable of managing this at
1: home. That's a lot. That is a lot. I'm wondering, you each spoke about working together with the team to develop a clinical pathway for bronchiolitis. Can you speak to what that experience was like?
2: It was definitely a fun experience, I would say. I I worked with Anna Maria. I'm sorry, Heather, I didn't know you at that time. I would have loved to work with you. But I worked with one of my co-fellows, as well as several hospitalists, a lot of nursing, charge nurses, nursing leadership to create this pathway. The management had been discussed and I think was not necessarily contentious, but everyone had their slight variations, as we were alluding to earlier, that made it more challenging. And it was amazing to see how many individuals rallied around developing the pathway. Um, something that with the pathway itself, that which is why nursing is so pivotal And Maria and Mary Ellen were both on the creation of the pathway was because it, it's very nursing-led in terms of focusing around oxygen, meaning rapid oxygen, meaning as well as monitoring. And the real reason behind that is when we looked at previous studies and looked at evidence, these are the factors that increase length of stay unnecessarily. And it increases the burden not only on our healthcare system, but on families and caregivers keeping children here for longer than they need to be. In general, everyone does it better at home. And that's usually my philosophy. But going back to it, it, it was a really fun experience. <laughs> it definitely took a while to get everyone on the same page, developing all the nitty-gritty nuances, and it gave me a new appreciation of how complicated uh, nursing protocols are, mm-hmm. uh, how complicated systems are, and how do you manage all the different elements to create something that would be successful and usable.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought it was an incredible uh, opportunity to work with our physician colleagues and especially with Charlie. We did go back and forth a little bit about, you know, the reality of oxygen saturation and checking. And, you know, I think at one point they wanted us to put the sat on, leave it on for 42 seconds, go back in, take it off, check it again in 82 seconds. And we were like, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Not doing kind of the reality you. of it. <laughs>
2: Hopes and dreams.
3: And so we're like, great, if you're yeah, to just, just get our two it. to do it. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, creating that, you know, that live, this is impossible. This, that, we, we just can't do that. And so having that collaboration and having the opportunity to really tell our story about how exactly it happens at the bedside mm-hmm. and how, you know, we have other patients and we have other things that we obviously need to tend to as well. That was probably the, the area on the pathway that we spent the most time on and the weaning. Each side had their own comfort level as to when I feel like, you know, in the old CPG, if you did a room air challenge at 8 o'clock in the morning, there's no need to do another one at noontime because four hours later isn't going to change the, the way a, a, a patient really is on an oxygen requirement. So if the patient's on a liter at 8 o'clock, you're not going to, and fails a room air it's highly unlikely that the patient four hours later is going to be ready to wean to room air. And so some of it was really, you know, a lot of busy work or just documentation of it, but that was one of them. And then the CBR monitoring. And I still think we have a lot of work uh, around this and that really speaks to the work that's happening with uh, Patty's work, Charlie's on that group. And so am I really vested nurses have been doing some data collection. And I think that'll really provide us with some more evidence, and some more, you know, rationales as to why these patients really don't need continuous SAT monitoring. And, uh, you know, the ramifications behind that, not only for length of stay, but it's, you know, as Charlie said, these patients and families are better off at home. And so, yeah, I look forward to working on that group as well. I think it's great. And, um, you know, there's a lot of myths surrounding bronchiolitis in the nursing world too. And one of the ones that when I was a charge nurse, you know, you'd always come on on the day shift and there, we would say, Oh, yeah, that baby in 32 is on a continuous SAT monitor, rang all night. I don't know why it was going off all night. And then, you know, that conversation and that myth of, oh, why is he on the continuous SAT? Well, he's on oxygen. Well, just because he's on oxygen doesn't mean he needs to be on the continuous SAT monitor. And so a lot of education that still really needs to be, you know, continued. It's funny how years later, it's still the same issues. And so really taking a hard look at that and re-educating people as to why that's not necessary and uh, working collaboratively with the physician staff to not write the orders or get them, you know, discontinued.
1: Yeah. So it's a culture shift that you're dealing with. And like oh, you said, definitely. the education yeah. as well. Yeah. So Charlie or Heather, would you have another number one or your top myth that you want to bust right now? Just one.
2: <laughs> I know it's so hard to choose amongst the myths. I think from my side, a lot of us know that evidence, but whether we practically use it is the difference. And so it's not so much as a myth, but it is just feeling comfortable that we have good research out there to depict a picture of what is good for these patients and to use that knowledge and use the skills that are all around you, where if you want a second opinion, want a third opinion, you have amazing nurses who have seen thousands of kids with bronchiolitis. You have amazing expertise. Who have seen significantly even more individuals than that, that just to use your research, the resources that are around you to whether it is to build your self-comfort or to raise the questions and concerns that you're worried about this child, should I be?
4: Right. That's really great advice. I think my two biggest ones are probably Please stop prescribing albuterol for everyone that comes in, Um, especially the continuous variety. I don't know how many kids we've had even this season that we've gotten on continuous. Some already escalated to BiPAP. And we've peeled back. We've taken away the albuterol. We're maybe Q1 or Q2-ing them. We're putting them on high flow, which is so much more comfortable. They can eat on high flow. There's so many better avenues that we can do. Obviously, if they're hitting the ICUs, they're pretty sick and they're working pretty hard and oxygen saturations are compromised. But I think we really just need to maybe slow down a little bit suction, do all the things we know how to do first before immediately escalating to the highest point because a lot of these patients we've turned around very quickly once they've gotten to us and we did all the original things that we would have done. And I know we're all over overstretched, understaffed. everybody's going a little bit crazy right now, so we're all doing our best. So it's easy to play fingers and go, don't do that anymore. but I think if we really revisit the basis of our practices, like what we know what to do, and we know the right things to do, and I think we're just—I don't know—say, so I think it's looking for the right answer or the easiest answer, but I think we're escalating a little bit more quickly in some cases than we need to. And with that being said, also, I always have to say to somebody the nurse, I inevitably get a call, the patient's really tachypnic. I'm like RSV bronchiolitis. I'm like, uh-huh. I'm like, mm-hmm, and I'm like, are, are, you know, are they like retracting really badly, or are they just, you know, mm-hmm. are they head bobbing, or are they just? breathing a little quick, are they comfortably tachypneic? I hate that phrase, but are they comfortably tachypneic or are they genuinely distressed? So I think that's a fine line too. And I think people that are less experienced with bronchiolitis, to see a bronchiolitic is like, ah, oh, what's going on? This isn't right. This isn't, but patients and tie. okay, let's suction, let's this, let's do that. They have no FiO2 requirement. Let's just get them through the night let's get them through the day let's get them to the bottle let's get you know let's try and normalize as much as we can because a lot of the studies have shown that nutrition is key feeding it in itself especially with the babies is such a comfort measure Um, and as long as they're not too tachypnic to coordinate nursing and and swallowing or swallowing and breathing that we should encourage it and i think we need to push modalities and treatments that support that Mm
3: -hmm. I think Heather brings an incredibly important point from a nursing aspect of it, and it took me years because when you walk in, you see the baby asleep, nasal flaring, maybe some retractions, holding their sats. You want to do something, and you really just gotta let it take its course. Close monitoring, supportive care, and you know some people get in there and they're overly aggressive with a suctioning or they're. You know, banging on the chest, they want to give a neb. It's like, let the baby sleep. And really, really just, it, it's hard. It's hard for an experienced nurse, never mind, uh, you know, a less experienced nurse, to really just be comfortable with the status quo. Mm-hmm. And that's what I always say like, they're not getting worse. They're not any better, but knowing that bronchitis takes time and it, it takes uh, a little bit of patience as well. If they start DSATing or they start even more to Kipnik. Those are the, the, you know, the cardinal signs of, or if they become a red choose, those kinds of things. Those are the uh, things, but solidly a yellow choose all night for a bronchiolitic that is holding their own eating and drinking. Okay. And uh, doing all those things is hard. It's hard to just sit back and watch that, but that's what these kids need. Sometimes they just need the essence of time.
0: I was wondering if um, the three of you could speak a little bit to, um, like uh, it was mentioned, like team failure involved with caring for patients with bronchiolitis. Speak to some of the challenges you may have come across and how can we support like shared mental models across the three disciplines here?
2: Teresa, I so appreciate that question. I think it's exactly what you said, which is create a shared mental model. That is where I see the majority of team failures. It's when the individuals don't come together At the same time, at the same moment, to really discuss what is happening with the patient and what is like the next steps in management. So, for example, I've had so many situations where one individual sees the patient 30 minutes earlier, another individual sees them 30 minutes later, then we've got a third and a fourth. So, everyone is seeing this patient at a different time point. As we talked about earlier, bronchiolitis, it changes every minute. So, ideally, you're having that entire team come together looking at this individual saying this is what i'm seeing i'm seeing tachypnea i'm seeing subcostal rejection i'm seeing intercostal i'm seeing nasal flaring and then discussing their opinion at that point it's are you concerned are you not concerned why do you not feel concerned or what other things are in the back of your mind what are you worried about from any perspective is someone worried about pneumonia someone worried about protestant validating that validating that concern talking about those concerns as well as coming up with those next steps early. It's always great to contingency plan is what I say to everyone. Always know what you're going to do in that emergency. If that patient develops and bobbing, what are we going to do? Yes, we will call the ICU, but what do we do immediately to stabilize them? What are our next steps in management? And how do we all feel confident going into a night or a day that we're going to be comfortable? And, and for me, it's just, it's communication. Communication is so key and i had the opportunity to work with Anne-Marie on when she was a church nurse. And it was so great because I think that's where I felt nurses felt so empowered. And as a physician, you know, I was a fellow at that point. It was great getting the residents, getting the fellow, getting the attendings, getting the charge, getting everyone at the bedside, essentially not a sepsis huddle, a respiratory huddle. Just being like, okay, what are we doing? Let's talk about it all together. And that at least makes it, I would say at a minimum, it may not improve management momentarily, but it improves comfort. I think also more rapidly acknowledges respiratory failure because sometimes there is truth to what someone has seen. Um, And often that does go ignored depending on where in the time you actually saw the patient.
3: I think it creates an important message for families at the bedside as well, kind of knowing that we're all on the same page and that, you know, a lot of times when those uh, huddles happen, the next step is to convene again in, a, in a, like an hour or two. And so I think that provides comfort for families as well to know that, okay, where everyone has a plan, they're going to circle back with us and then, you know, move forward. I agree. I think what Charlie spoke to
4: about having the team all on the same page and seeing them all differently obviously the doctor's availability versus the bedside nurse's availability based on when the RT can get in and out of the room. We're all seeing very different pictures oftentimes. And I think it creates a us and them kind of mentality because I know as an RT, I may have 10 to 12 bed spaces myself with patients that are on machines and and I'm being pulled in a lot of directions. Nursing uh, on the floors can have, I think you guys can have up to four patients at a time in the ICUs, it's typically, you know, no more than two. I know the ICP has often had up to three sometimes, depending on staffing. So, but I think to get us all together, cause I know if I get a call from a nurse and I just saw the patient 20 minutes ago and she goes, they're still breathing fast, I'm gonna go, yep. And meanwhile, I'm wrestling, intubating somebody else and I may not come back to circle back to address her concerns. So I'm gonna go, have you suctioned? You know, have you done the basic things, the attending? Uh, maybe running around to go check on something else and we'll swing back by and by this time the baby looks good again. So we're going through this whole (laughs) ebb and flow and I think we're not meeting together to say, this is what I observed, this is what I've seen, this is my opinion, this is how I would, this is what I would suggest and getting everybody on the same page because I know for a fact that there's probably been times where nurses have said, I can't believe she's not doing anything for this patient but it's a time constraint or it's a, in my opinion, this is what I saw and to not um, take anything away from what they're seeing. But I can only do my judgment based on what I'm seeing. So if I walk in the room and everything's fine, I'm going to walk back out again without escalating. And I think that makes the nurse feel marginalized, that I'm not taking her concerns seriously or I'm not helping her patient. So I think that this ends up leading to bad feelings sometimes too, which also inhibits care. So I think that getting everybody on the same page would be really, really beneficial. Just to have like even a two-minute, hey, we're worried about this patient. Let's take a look. Not like an ICU stat, but just like a little baby, hey, let's look at this. We're concerned.
0: I totally agree with everything that you just said, Heather, as far as getting everybody to the bedside at the same time. And Charlie, you you brought up the comparison of a sepsis huddle, which is kind of like a precursor to do we need an ICU eval and getting everybody to the bedside so that you're all on the same page. Does make a lot of sense.
3: Can I trouble you to share some of the experiences in the ER for these families? I I know you're not listed as the SME, but I'm just curious we talk about the patient journey that
1: they're presenting to you and what it's like for the nurses in the ER. Yeah, so I definitely can appreciate the team huddles and the collaboration up on the floor. I think in the ER, things start off a little bit differently. Patients come in and they're usually in quite a bit of distress. And we're not really sure why. So we go back to that whole thought of, we have to do something. So let's try a neb. And actually, Anna Maria, what you were talking about is let the baby feed. The first thing that popped into my mind was, well, we make them NPO immediately. And then they get so hungry because they're waiting. And then they start crying. And then there's more mucus. And then they're more upset. And then they're hungrier. And then they're crying. So It's like a vicious cycle. And if we just step back and think about what you just said, like, I think if we let them feed, we'll see how they're doing and we'll be able to gauge our care from there. But I do definitely feel like in the ER, we feel like we have to do something. So just standing back and watching the patient is not gonna fly. (laughs) You know, they wanna do something. And the parents- Yeah,
3: we did make them NPL and we didn't yeah. feed them, and especially if they ate, and then after feeding, they became more tachypneic. They were going to be NPO, for sure,
1: mm-hmm. and so,
3: but again, uh, uh, studies have shown that, you know, one of the vital things for healing and for improvement is really feeding, mm-hmm. uh, and then you go a whole back and forth with, should it be high, uh, rehydrolyte or pediolite some
1: formula, so they can cough, yeah, <laughs> yeah, all these little tricks, but I think the other caveat is that parents who bring their child, their children in expect us to do something. They don't expect us to say, we're going to sit back and watch your child breathe heavily for the next six hours. That's not what they want. They want instant intervention. So it's a catch 22 and it's, it's really difficult, especially when you know, the the child is a, a young infant and the parents are sleep deprived. They've been up probably two or three nights in a row and they're just looking for help. So it's definitely very, very hard, I think, um, especially for the parents when they come in. Yeah. And I
3: want to really acknowledge the fact that anyone that's going in the ER, it's a whole different stress level. And so it it definitely raises the bar as far as, Mm -hmm. you know, someone's coming to the emergency department, they want you to do something and they want it like now. And so Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to that, taking care of all the other stuff that's happening in the mm-hmm. emergency department. So uh, definitely a tough situation. Yeah,
0: you know I'm curious too, Denise and um, Heather, and actually Charlie, jump in as well. You have a child with bronchiolitis sitting down in the ED, and you know you're trying to decide uh, the disposition, whether they go to a general unit or ICU, ICP setting. You know what's the criteria? How do you decide? What what are the deciding factors that lead to where the child's going to get placed?
2: Well, there are a couple of different things from my end, and, and a lot of it is the judgment of the individual down in the emergency department as well as nursing down in the emergency department on what they expect, the clinical trajectory. Saying that, I think there are some objective things. Choose scoring is great. If I see that someone has a red shoes, it, it raises a second flag to me just being like, hey, let me think about this. Maybe this is worth the trip, taking a look at them downstairs, or maybe this is worth asking the emergency room, healthcare team, someone to go just take another look. So the specific things I'm looking at is their work of breathing. How hard are they working? How much oxygen are they receiving? Yeah. Are they already on four liters of nasal cannula? And this is my next step, essentially high-flow nasal cannula or BiPAP, et cetera. And I'm also looking at what are their underlying medical risk factors? Do they have chronic lung disease and are they at four liters or have they been previously intubated every time they had bronchiolitis? Um, which is helping me decide about whether they need more intensive nursing care, whether they need more intensive overall medical care, or alternative pharmacological treatment, although we don't routinely say that that's indicated.
1: Yeah, and I can add that I know the ER nurses definitely watch the O2 sets, and as that number goes down, their anxiety goes up. Like they know this patient is increasing their oxygen requirement, and there's no way this patient is going home like this. So definitely from a nursing perspective, they're watching the work of breathing and the oxygen requirement and going from there. And also what the parents say too, you know, if the parents are really worried, then we're worried as well. how about about from an RT's perspective? It's kind of hard. We get
4: called, I don't want to say every time, that there's somebody down there that's a bronchiolytic, sometimes it feels like it, Um, but I'm sure with the numbers that I see down in the ED that that is absolutely not possible, or I would never leave. Like for us, it's hard. A lot of times by the time we're getting called, we're past the point of easy interventions like suctioning or just throwing a cannula on them. Um, If we're getting called, this patient is typically not going to be a floor patient they're going to the ICP or the ICU because I'm starting high flow or I'm starting BiPAP. I just, I don't know down in the ED, like sometimes we'll go down if we're called and we will suction. We will do what we can to help out in that respect and see if that makes any changes or affects anything with the patient. But again, typically they're already at the point where we're going, "Uh uh-oh, and we've
3: decided to escalate. I want to mention too, because we've talked a lot I feel like we've talked a lot about suctioning. So there's a downside to a lot of suctioning too. There's a fine line, really. The mushroom tip suctioning, there's uh, nasopharyngeal suctioning, there's deep suctioning. And so every time when you're dealing with an upper airway inflammation and you're sticking only the obligate nose breather has a passageway that you keep in and out, in and out, in and out. So that there's a fine line of really being gentle uh, but still providing that care. And so we talk a lot about, you know, one of the things being suctioning, but, you know, in a conservative way, but yet enough that it p- creates relief. That's so to talk about yeah, that. Yeah. That's absolutely
4: a, an excellent point. And I do not endorse <laughs> over suctioning anybody because there's nothing worse than needing to suction and finding an airway that's so inflamed that I can't pass any kind of catheter down there. They actually need it at that point. Uh, we do a lot of mushroom tipping. And I honestly believe that coughing is probably our best friend with it. If we can get them like upright, maybe a couple of I know chest PT has no real efficacy and things, but like having the mom hold and have them cough themselves goes a really long way. But it's just like it's little things like that, that I don't th- know that we can really affect um, on the fly. Uh, it's just more so once we have them in our grips, so to speak, we can encourage
0: these behaviors with the families um, and at bedside. You touched base on high flow. Can you speak to a little bit about the benefits of high flow with um, these patients? I know absolutely. we were, absolutely we, we had so. um, <laughs> educated our staff pre-COVID and we were going to run with it on the general unit. Nine yes. was going to be one of the pilots, but then came along COVID. So that yeah. got tabled. COVID kind of squashed a lot of stuff. Um, I was so excited
4: to get high flow onto the floors just because I felt like it would free up so many of our ICU and ICP beds. But with high flow, the way the system works is it's obviously high flow, air or oxygen combination. We're blending it. The way our particular device, the VapoTherm, works is that there's a central cannula that the air is flowing through and that's surrounded by um, heated water. So it creates this optimal humidity. We actually heat uh, the units up to 37 degrees Celsius so that everything that's being delivered to the patient is body temperature so that it's the best humidity that gets down into the lungs. It helps open up the alveoli. It encourages gas exchange. It encourages better oxygenation. And we can do it at certain levels um, i know in the medical critical care family we actually have a bronchiolitis high flow nasal cannula pathway that we use where we do we start the patients on one per kilo on the high flow and escalate to as much as two per kilo and then we lead down to one per kilo and off hopefully and we're finding a lot of really great outcomes with this uh, it's shortening length of stay. It's allowing us to wean more effectively, but high flow, the humidity really, really helps the patients uh, keep this thin out the secretions and mobilize a um, mucociliary clearance up through the airway in order to uh, allow the patients to take better breaths. It helps slow down the work of breathing in a lot of cases from the flow itself. Uh, There's a lot of studies out there, yay and nay, as to whether or not any PAP is actually achieved during the high flow. Obviously, the smaller the patient, the more likelihood of that happening is. But unlike CPAP or BiPAP, it's, it's much more passive. And as I said earlier, we can feed on high flow, which is not something we can do when we go to a mask device because they immediately become NPO the second we get a mask on them. In case we need to escalate, um, and we also don't want food in the belly because when we blow air in there, it tends to not be a good combination. But the high flow is just a, a phenomenal tool in our, in our tool bag uh, that I like to use. That's usually my first thing. If I see a bronchiolytic, I'm like, high flow, yay! <laughs> Let's see if we can ease this up a little bit and um, stop uh, the escalation.
1: And I think nursing, too, can definitely be an advocate to try the high flow as opposed to some of all these other interventions that we know don't work. Yeah, just listening to your description, Heather, it sounds like a great tool to
0: help prevent respiratory failure without jumping right to CPAP or BiPAP. There's a lot of studies
4: they're doing now. I'm hopeful that uh, they pan out so that a lot of them have a little asterisk on them that, yes, they worked, but they need more studying.
3: What are some of the talking points for the families I think of the parents completely stressing out over this as you all discussed. So what are some of the talking points to put their mind at ease? Yeah, I think, you know, as Charlie had mentioned, really getting them ready for discharge and really having them be an active, being active in their care right from day one. Some of the expectations are that they wean successfully off of oxygen, that they're eating and are drinking sufficient to keep themselves hydrated, that they're having really good wet diapers and that that they're not going to have resolution of all their symptoms is really important, I think, with bronchiolitis because you can have a little bit of retractions. You can have that cough forever. And so really partnering with them and letting them know that all these things are normal things that are happening. You'll see improvements every day once you you start seeing improvements. They may be small, but they are improvements. And so really partnering with families, you know, giving them that message that they're going to have a cough for a little while. They may have a little bit of a runny nose Um, they won't go home on oxygen unless they've been here for a month and then we we send them home but likelihood of going home on oxygen is you know one of one of the goals that they're eating and drinking well their comfort level really does play a part in the discharge disposition plan of care you know they need to be comfortable and that's where the physician staff and the bedside nurse really plays an important part in preparing them for discharge
4: I actually loved what Charlie said earlier, and I wrote it down, that discharge education starts at admission. I was like, oh my God, yes. Yes, it does. We have to do this. And I think if we made, if we incorporated that a little bit more into our, all of our practices, it will go along. Right? We wouldn't
3: have bed capacities every day. <laughs> yeah, crazy with
1: that one. <laughs> I have one more question. What if When you're going over discharge instructions, and then the next thing you know, the patient returns the next day, and I'm talking about in the ER, and they return and the parents say, well, my child has a fever now. What do you do for fever education in the setting of bronchiolitis?
2: So for me, at least, it would depend on what day of illness. So there is some variability. So if you had a patient who had a fever, didn't have a fever for a few days, then came back with fever... actually changes my differential in my head. So that's where I'm worried about, do they now have a superimposed pneumonia? Do they have something else? Or did they catch another virus by being in the hospital, Mm -hmm. which is honestly happened so frequently, as we all know. So it would be a case by case basis for me. Um, And I do usually recommend with families, if if they had a fever, they're still having fever after four to five days, fall with your primary care doctor or come back to care. Or if it's a new fever, please call your primary care doctor or come back to care. Um, And I think this is where there is a critical piece of that link between inpatient and outpatient as well. Because there is a lot of ability to triage some of this on the outpatient side. Um, And it's been interesting, actually. There have been some recent studies because we used to recommend for everyone have a scheduled primary care appointment a day after discharge. But what we've learned is actually it's the same, just telling parents follow up as needed. That's what the most research, most recent research is indicating. So this is where it's just it's more important, as everyone has mentioned, it's it's that education on families about what are the worry signs and who are you going to call if they are having them? Um, because sometimes unfortunately some of our patients don't have primary care doctors. And that's where it extends onto the inpatient team of hey, let's think about this patient a little bit more holistically. How do we make sure that they continue to have good health done? Sorry, I deviated from your original question on fever and went into a nitro. So.
1: No, that was really helpful. Really good. I think because you're asking
3: about education as well, I just wanted to kind of give a little push for the get well system. You know, a lot of families, it, they're overloaded with a lot of information. So anytime you can provide any kind of written literature or assign, I know there's an RSV one. I know there's a bronchiolitis one on that get well system and kind of just assign those videos as an additional learning opportunity for families when they're at the bedside. Uh, I also want to put a plug in for that system that's completely underused. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we're doing a re-education on that as well. But the get well system is something that is not used as often as probably
2: it should. Sorry to tack on to that. Also, it's just using interpreter services for our patients who don't have English as their primary language, I think is so key at discharge as well. We do see and we know that there is a disproportionate number of individuals who return who don't have English as their primary language or English as a second language. So just realizing we have those resources available to us using our amazing interpreters for discharge education, as well as even writing out the discharge instructions, sometimes can be immensely helpful and comforting for families.
1: Yeah, that's a very important point, Charlie, for sure. We're definitely not utilizing them the interpreters the way that we should be.
0: This has been great. I want to thank all three of you for joining us today. I've learned a lot just listening to the conversation. Before we wrap it up, I just want to, or as we wrap it up, could each of you think about like a message to give our listeners, maybe like one big takeaway from each of our guests today that you'd want people to remember?
2: Can I do two?
0: You can do two. You get (laughs) two.
2: You'll allow it. I I mean, one is really corny, but it's teamwork makes the dream work. Do not hesitate to engage every member of the team. And that means as a trainee, if you are concerned, talking to the nurse, talking to the charge nurse, talking to the RT, talking to your attendee. or if you're the nurse, talking to the resident, talking to your charge nurse, just utilize the resources that are available to you. Because at the end of the day, we all want to provide great patient care. And part of the power of that here at Boston Children's is we have so many resources. Use them. Um, And I think my second message is, please use continuous pulse oximetry appropriately. And what I mean by that is the majority of our patients qualify for spot O2 checks, use the choose algorithm to help you determine whether a patient needs it. And if you choose to deviate with it, this is another scenario where talk to your team. There may be different comfort levels, other individuals can give you a different perspective, or you may have a different perspective that is valid and everyone else needs to reconsider. That is my long two takeaways.
3: Oh, thanks, Charlie. Charlie kind of took my two, but I think coming off of the communication pathway, we should call it. We should have a pathway for communication. I think we do, but not called that. But I think as a a retired charge nurse, I think the most important thing that we talked about is when you're concerned about a patient, um, having that huddle going to your charge nurse and the charge nurse, the physician team, whether it's an ICU evaluation, it's crucial, and RT at the bedside, having everyone outside of the room, creating a plan, and having um, you know everyone just in time uh, really being on the same page is, is really important for, as Heather and Charlie both said, it's really important for planning out the approach to this patient's care. And it has shown that it, there's better outcomes with that. I think it, it's just so important because it's piecemealed so much sometimes, That i think it it creates a lot more work than is necessary Mm
4: -hmm. the downside to going last is hearing all these great answers first but i'm going to agree with both of you i think communication is ideal but as i'm listening i'm realizing how much we don't actually listen to each other a lot of times too we go down and we state our points of view and we kind of stick to that as opposed to taking the time to actually listen And hear what's being said about what's going on in the room. So that would be my big takeaway is to not only speak up for patient safety, but listen and act accordingly to opinions of others.
0: That's awesome. Thanks, Heather. And really, you just hit the nail on the head with effective communication is uh, listening instead of just anchoring on your own opinions. All right. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. All right. Please. Take care. Please. All right. This Small Talk podcast is sponsored by the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator at Boston Children's Hospital, with support from our emergency department and inpatient medicine programs. If you would like to be a guest on Small Talk, email Denise Downey. We'd love to have you as a guest and have you share your expertise with the entire Boston Children's community. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Small Talk Podcast.